0: From the New York City area, welcome to The Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby.
1: All right. You have arrived. You have arrived at a lightning round episode of The Badass Counseling Show. We are in the New York City area, and it's raining today, but it's sunny in our hearts. Oh, and it's so nice to have you here. Wherever you are listening in from, be it Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, or Adelaide, or anywhere in the whole wide world, I am so excited to have you here. I really am. I know that was like the dopiest thing you've ever heard me say, and I have a long list of dopiacity, so yeah, that's up there, though. It's great to have you here. I have KC over in the booth, and she is sunny as always, never a grim day with her. And I have Rob sitting next to me, and I love Rob, and I wish you guys could know Rob as well as I know Rob. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Not in the biblical sense, Uh, but he's just a lovely guy. Rob... Tell yes. me, what is going on in your life
0: today that we need to know about? I'm just uh, really getting used to doing the sidekick thing, and I think I'm I'm getting pretty good at it. I think you're darn good at it. Yeah, not, it's my first sidekick gig.
1: Well, I tell you, you are the master on uh, mixing all of this, and he's really the one that takes it from the rawness of... Uh, the taping to what you hear when it's on the air. And for those of you listening in to the podcast, uh, I actually sound good uh, or at least reasonable. And that is all because of Rob.
0: Thank you, my friend. Very gracious. It's true.
1: It's true. So we're going to dive right in here and we've got some great questions. I've got live feeds going right now on YouTube, on TikTok and on Facebook. All right. Give me your questions, people. Here we go. I've got the first one right here. How do you heal over a relationship that got cheated on so you can make yourself better? Okay, so you got cheated on, you want to heal, and you want it to, in order to be better, right? Uh, I just have this quick little question on the side, and that is, be better, what do you mean? Be better so you can have a better, you know, feel better about yourself and just feel better and, and you know, be happier in life? Or is, are you sort of intimating there so that I can be better so that someone, the next person won't want to cheat on me? Is there any of that sort of thinking in there? And the only reason I'm asking that is because there, if there is even a trace of that thinking that I want to be better so that someone won't cheat on me, what it implies is that you are at fault, even to some degree, for someone cheating on you. And I want to dispel that myth right now. If someone has cheated on you, it's not your fault. And I know on one hand you may realize that or think that. I know, Sven, I know it's not my fault, but no, 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 no. Very often, the person who gets cheated on has the cheater breathing fire on. Well, if you hadn't done this, or if you would, you know, hadn't put on those fifty pounds, Steve, or you know, honey, if you weren't such a raging bitch, then I, you know, if you didn't nag me so much, that no, 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 don't fucking blame me for you breaching the contract of this relationship. I've done TikToks on this before, many many videos on cheating. You can get them on TikTok or YouTube or Instagram or whatever. And one of them that one of the points I drill home is. Do you know that there are people, so let's just take that that situation. You know, my wife cheated on me because I, she says, well, if I hadn't put on those 50 pounds and become a couch potato and become lazy, she wouldn't cheat on me. Okay. Did you know that there are actually wives out there in this world who have husbands who put on a lot of weight and maybe even become lazy where the wife doesn't cheat? Did you know that? Do you know that it is not a direct line from husband putting on weight and becoming lazy to wife cheats? There are about 50 other options in that basket of choices. The wife has the choice of, well, we could talk about it. Well, you could join a fucking quilting group. Well, you could this. Well, you could that. But you chose to pull out of the basket cheating. And you're saying that because I, Steve, put on 50 pounds and became lazy, you cheated. As if there's a one-to-one correlation that A, necessarily not just implies, but necessitates B, cheating. Well, that's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. There are 50 other things you could fucking do. So don't blame me for your fucking cheating. That's the reason I'm asking this question. You ask the question, Sven, how do I heal over a relationship that got cheated on so that I can make myself better? I'm asking the question, are you wanting to make, is somewhere in your thinking the thought that I have to make myself better so that I'm more enjoyable uh, and the next person won't cheat on me? Because if it is, we need to flush that one out because it's not your fault that your spouse cheated on you. It's not. They just chose to be lazy. They chose to be a coward and not look you in the face and say, you know what? I'm not happy in this relationship and I want to end it. And I'm doing it before I sleep with someone else or have an emotional affair with someone else. I'm doing that out of respect for you, out of being a fucking decent person, right? Because that's what decent people do. They end it first or they talk about it first, but your spouse didn't do that. They cheated. All right. You basically ask, how do I heal over a relationship that I got cheated on? You flush out all of the pain, all the sadness. I'm betting you still have love. And I'm betting you have pain from it, It sadness, maybe anger, rage. Just flush, flush, flush. How do you heal? You flush, you flush, you flush. Keep flushing until it's out of you. Until the pain is out of you, it's still in you. Next question. And and I I know that may seem simplistic, but it literally is. You have to have the courage to go into all your feelings. Begin to allow up all the feelings that you've maybe been keeping down. Because you don't want to touch them. Because the thought of touching them, it'd be so overwhelming. God, it would overtake me. I couldn't handle it. Yeah, exactly. You're, that means you're expending as much energy or more trying to keep all those feelings down that you're so afraid of. That's chewing up your insides, right? And then you're a person walking around now with pain. You're a person walking around with sadness. You're a person walking around possibly with hate. I'm not a hater. Spend bullshit. You got it inside of you. Until you get the hate out, and flush it out on paper. On a computer, write poetry, write lyrics, a song, whatever it takes to get the pain out, put it into words. Once it's out of you, then you're not a hater anymore if it's hate. Or you're not a a sadder or a or an anger or all those feelings inside of you, they're out. And that's when you, you become not a better person, but more authentically your own self rather than this wounded self who's carrying around all this pain. Next question. And this is one that has been tangled with by um Billy Crystal and, uh, come on, who was the other one? Harry Met Sally. Uh, Meg Ryan, right? That was the pair. Yeah, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan tangled with what question, Rob, above all else?
0: Uh, can a man and woman be friends?
1: Good man. Good man. This guy knows everything. He was, he'd spent decades in the entertainment industry, you know, he was an exec at a movie studio or a, what was it?
0: Various jobs in the entertainment industry, which explains why my brain is fried.
1: Thank oh, you. come on. In the entertainment industry, big shot and a lovely person. And he always knows everything related to anything in the entertainment industry. And leave that in, by the way, Rob. Sure. All right. Back to the question. Here we go. Can men and women be friends? And puts friends in capital letters. So she's shouting friends without one having ulterior motives or want more than a friendship. Can it happen? Sure. Yes, I believe it can happen. But consider also this. Can they be friends? And one has, wants more than a friendship, but what if they never act on it? What if they just leave it there and sure, I want it. Gee, it'd be great if I could be Susie's lover. I wish Susie would fall in love with me, but I can't and that's okay. And so I'm settled being her friend. It's one thing to have the ulterior motive and that makes it sound sort of devious or bad, but it's other than just having that wanting. Sure, they can be friends. I've been in relationships like that where I wanted more or the person, other person admits, man, I'd you know, love to be in a relationship with you. And it's just like, for whatever reason, it wasn't. Okay, that other relationship wasn't. However, so it's one thing to have that inclination or have that urge to have this relationship with the other person, to want more with this other person. It's one thing to have that urge. Wanting it is one thing, that's benign. But are you acting on it? Are you trying to slip shit in? Is the person trying to finagle something? Well, that's different. That's not just having an ulterior motive. That's taking action to get what I want rather than just accepting I don't get that. See, now those are two different things. One is benign and one is a bit more malignant. Where they're acting on it or always trying to finagle in. That's different. That's not okay. I mean, if I draw a boundary and say, listen, I don't want more than that with you, then you got to honor that. And if you don't honor that, well, then I have to respect my boundaries and I may have to create a little space because you're not respecting my wishes. But you ask the question, can men and women be friends without one having ulterior motives or wanting more than a friendship? Now, I believe I see in the picture next to your name that you're a appear to be a woman, and so is it possible that you have a lover in your life, either a man or a woman, who is having a relationship with someone of the opposite gender, and that is what—or another gender, and that is what concerns you, and you fear that they may be doing something that your, your partner, your husband, whatever, may have other motives. And see, now, now we get into something a little different. If a couple is married, and then, let's say, the husband has a female friend outside of the marriage— and it could be that wife has a male friend outside of the marriage or a female friend if there are uh, bisexual tendencies, whatever. See, now that's a different animal. That's a different animal. A new friend of uh, that you think that this person might have interest in, that's a different animal. Because if it's an old friend, we've known each other since elementary school, that's sort of benign, isn't it? You've known each other forever. What's wrong with that, Right. But if it's a new friend, yeah, I would definitely have my uh, antennae up because that's a little bit out of the ordinary, okay? Potentially a lot out of the ordinary. But I would have to ask more questions in order to be able to answer that one better. All right, next question. Why is it so hard to stay, question mark, no contact with a narcissist? I'm going to assume that middle uh, question mark is a mistake. And it's just one sentence. Why is it so hard to stay no contact with a narcissist? Well, there are really two answers to that. One is either A, they're violating your boundaries, or B, you're violating your boundaries. To stay no contact with a narcissist means that if you have drawn boundaries and they are transgressing, they are uh, trespassing beyond inside of your boundaries, that's not okay, which means you have to put your boundaries higher, which may mean you know bringing in the law. It may mean getting a restraining order, something along those lines. Or it may be that you are transgressing your boundaries, which means you're sending mixed messages. Hey, I want you out of my life, but gee, how are you doing today? So I guess my first question to you would be, in your own self-work, to ask yourself the question, is it me that doesn't want to completely be no contact or is it the other person? And if it is you, I mean, if it's the other person in a way, that's its own set of problems, but you need to reinforce your boundaries and you need to be very strict in the reinforcement of your boundaries, right? Otherwise, they'll just keep coming, keep coming. You have to uh, do what needs to be done in that regard. But if it's you that's transgressing those boundaries, if it's you, then that says inside of you there is still longing, but there's also conditioning inside of you. And this condition goes back to childhood, this belief that this is all the better I can do, this belief that, oh, you know, you're conditioned to believe that I have to have this person want me. I'm afraid I won't be wanted by anyone. I have to keep giving and giving even after it's separated, that there is conditioning inside of you that is causing you to keep going back. In addition, there may very well be love. And you've got to, in your own self-work, be pulling out that love, flushing it out of you in your journaling, in your letter writing that you don't send. You have to be flushing out. And the other tools that I teach in my book, there's a hole in my love cup. You have to be flushing out the love that keeps you connected to this person. You need to be, and a lot of people say, "Oh, trauma bonds. Well, sure, fine, flush out the trauma bonds too. But what really set it up is all that conditioning in childhood where you were taught about yourself. You were taught to believe that you're no good, that you're not wanted, that you're not good enough, that really you doesn't matter. And so those messages are what is driving you to stay connected to to wanting to connect with someone who's hurtful for you and to you and whom you know is bad for you. And so it's that deeper stuff that you got to get down into. If you really want to solve the problem, you go down to the root of the problem. Anyway, otherwise, any solution is just going to be a half solution. And the real root of the problem, the real root of our conditioning of what we believe about ourselves and what we expect from relationships and uh, how we expect to be treated finds its origins in our childhood. Next question. Sven, I'm lost. I can't seem to figure out what I want to do. I can't find motivation. I always tell people that when motivation is the issue, there's one, either because I don't know what I want to do with my life or I know the direction I'm going to go, But I stop and I start, I stop and I start, I can't seem to sustain the energy. I always tell people when motivation is the issue, either A, the path you claim to want isn't the one you actually want, or B, you can't even hear your own voice, which it sounds like it is in this case. You ask the question, I'm lost, I can't seem to figure out what I wanna do, I can't find the motivation. To pursue the paths we want to pursue, the motivation comes effortlessly when we've removed the blockages. The reason you can't find your path, your voice, your passion, and can't find the motivation is because it's buried underneath a lot of pain, a lot of fears, and a lot of bullshit beliefs you were taught about yourself. But also, all of that likely came in the form of criticisms. You were likely taught as a child, or the lack of giving approval, but you were taught as a child not to listen to your own voice. I guarantee it. I guarantee if I were to dig down that down in there, you got messages about yourself, about your, uh, don't trust your own voice, what you want doesn't matter, you should do this, or criticisms when you went after what you wanted. And so you've packed that down and all those criticisms yourself and the implied messages in them, the message under the message was, don't trust your own voice, you don't know what you're talking about, you're no good, oh, that'll never work. So all those messages, until you get those out, those are all the voices you're hearing those self-critical voices. But that's not your natural state. You didn't come out of the fucking womb questioning yourself. You didn't come out of the womb saying, oh, I suck, I'm no good. No, you were taught a lie. You were conditioned to believe that. And so you don't even trust your own voice. You don't have a relationship with your own intuition, your own inner voice. And so you have to start pulling out all of that stuff. And you wanna know what happens the more you do that? The more you dive into in your self-work which is what I wrote the book for and created all the free videos for and everything, is to help. All of those are prompts for you to use in your journaling. All of those are prompts for you to use in letter writing or the Sedona method or some of the other methods in the book to flush all of that crap out. And the more you do that, you know what happens? Effortlessly. Your own passions, your clarity, your energy, all of it increases. You begin to see infinitely more clearly. And you want to know a cute little thing that happens? fascinating little thing. I see it all the time when I'm working with people, when it comes to career and passion and finding their dream and finding their calling and shit like that. Do you want to know what invariably happens? What invariably happens almost without exception is after we've gotten most of that or all of that crud out, what they realize in terms of what they want to do, what they really are excited to go after in their life was in front of them the whole time. In front of them the whole time. There's that old Zen proverb, the truth is obvious. It was sitting there the whole time, truly. But even if you did know it now, even if it were obvious and you did know it now, you don't have the energy to sustain it. Why? Because you've still got all that crud packed down and all that pain and shit from your past like a rock and a burlap sack on your back and it's dragging you down. You don't have the motivation. Until you get all the pain and crud out, you won't find it. You won't be able to sustain it or you won't be able to find your own authentic voice. All right, next question. Why is it okay for them to have boundaries but the minute I do, it's not okay? Why is it okay for them to have boundaries, but the minute I do, it's not okay? It's kind of harsh. It's not mean or anything. It's just it's a tough pill to swallow. The reason it's okay for them to have the boundaries, but the minute I do, it's not okay. Because you let them. You keep tolerating people who get pissy when you have your boundaries. And that hurts. And it, it, it criticism from other people hurt. When they get all you know angry and shit, well, you don't get to have a boundary. Fuck you. It's what I want. Blah, blah, blah right? It hurts. That would hurt anybody, right? But very often what happens, the reason this keeps happening is because when they rile themselves up, you back down and say, okay, you're right, I won't, or I, you're right, or somehow you back down. It's like in relationships. I, I often tell people, you know, in your relationships, you have to stand up for yourself. People say, oh, I, spend, I stand up all the time. I say, no, you don't. You stand up, but you sit back down. You stand up, but you back down. It's about standing up and staying standing up. Okay. And it's the same in this case that the more you stand up for yourself, the more you set your boundaries and don't back down, the more it will become normalized and you won't get, eventually you'll stop getting blowback from them. See, they want to keep having you under their thumb. They want to keep taking advantage of you. They want to keep uh, having that power imbalance. See, they have the power and you have less. They want to maintain that power imbalance where they get everything they want. They can transgress your boundaries, but you can't transgress theirs. They have the power. And so when you stand up or escalate your power, they just escalate more. They complain more. They get meaner more or more, right? So that they get to maintain that and then you back down. So they get to maintain that power imbalance. So what you have to be willing to do is escalate your power. When they escalate further, you have to escalate further to the point where it becomes abundantly clear to them, no more, no more you don't get to do this shit to me, it's done, it's over. Which requires the courage to not be liked, which requires the courage to have people be angry at you or be mad at you or not like you or be pissy with you. And once you have the courage that, once you're no longer afraid of their uh, blowback, of their pushback, of their response, of their criticism, once you're no longer afraid of that, or you can say, you know what, I can flush that pain out in my own self-work, I'll flush that pain out, but nobody gets to do this to me anymore. Once you do that, everything changes. You will find everything begins to change. All right, much more to come right after this short break.
0: You've heard Sven talk a lot about his book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. And that's because Sven hears from his followers a lot about how much the book has helped them. If you're not sure how to handle the issues getting in the way of a better life, you're not alone. And you have a lot of choices. But thousands of readers will tell you that this is a great place to start, by yourself and at your own pace. So go to badasscounseling.com and order There's a Hole in My Love Cup And you'll have Sven right there with you as you forge your best future. It's totally badass. So get started today. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass.
1: We are back. And it's great to have you back. For everyone checking in around the world, around the U.S. and uh, North America, Canada, great to have you here. Thank you so much. We are taking questions live on TikTok, on Facebook, and on YouTube. Got listeners everywhere. Really great to have you here. Thank you. For those of you listening in around the world, we are really grateful for your ears and that uh, you keep coming back. And I'm grateful for the team here uh, making it so. So diving right back in. Do you speak on relationships with parents? Yes, everything is about your relationships with your parents, especially way back there, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Everything that's manifesting now as an adult between you and your parents, everything that's going on inside of you regarding your relationship with your parents or regarding your family, all started back there, 99 times out of 100. Most of my work uh, finds its origins in that sort of work. So please check out my videos. They're all free on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, you know, YouTube. They're all free and use those as opportunities in your own self work to go further inside. All right. Here's another one. We have never, ever gotten this question before. This is from Wheezy. Why do I dream of house my ex and I built together? Divorced 16 years now. Why do I dream of the house my ex and I built together after we've been divorced now 16 years? Well, Dream interpretation is kind of an interesting thing. And uh, there's no right or wrong answer on that. And and it's been happening for thousands and thousands of years, the interpretation of dreams. And everybody's going to have their own opinions on that and so forth. You ask me a straight question, I'll give you a straight answer. Everything I believe in dreams is metaphor. Everything is metaphor, or almost everything is a metaphor. It speaks of something else. Oftentimes dreaming of a house that you built together. Even though you've been divorced 16 years, I dream of a house my ex and I built together. That implies happier times. I dream of happier times. Now, I could be completely off base, but I'm willing to bet that there is somewhere in your life or potentially significantly in your life where you're not feeling happy, where you're maybe feeling alone or not feeling that warmth. Dreaming of a house, a home, can oftentimes bring feelings of comfort feelings of warmth, feelings of nesting. And there's something lovely about that. And the truth is, it may not even be that, uh, you know, there's something missing in your life today. It may not be that. I mean, we all have flashbacks or memories of uh, good times in the past. It doesn't necessarily mean that times are bad now, but if it's a regular occurrence, I'm willing, it's an indicator. It's your own soul speaking to you, uh, that longing for. It's your soul is speaking to you What's really going on here is you're longing for a sense of comfort. Then perhaps what's missing in your life is a sense of comfort, a sense of or building something together, building something in life or building a relationship with someone else. But it's beginning to look at our dreams as metaphor. What does it bespeak? So if I have a dream where there's a lot of, let's just say, the color green in it, just, I, God, I had this dream and the color green just popped out. This happened, that happened, that happened. Those things are important too. Those are their own metaphors. But the color green can mean what? Well, it can mean money. It can mean verdant. In other words, uh, lush, like green of spring. Green can also mean someone who's sort of wet behind the ears, someone who's green, inexperienced. One of my recurring sort of nightmares that I'll have every few years, every now and then, it takes me back to when I was waiting tables, which I did many for many years, Uh, while I was going through grad school and other stuff. And uh, the dream is sort of a nightmare because it's always like I'm on the computer punching in an order and I'm slow and I just got seated at another table and I'm behind the eight ball, you know, or I've got my pens. I always had my pens and I I couldn't get my pen to work and I still got to get waters out to that table and that table wants me to take their steak back because it's supposed to be medium rare, not medium well. It's the dream of feeling unprepared, overwhelmed. The overall metaphor for me is that in my life, I'm feeling overwhelmed when I get that dream. And that's a good indicator for me that I need to scale things back or adjust what I'm doing. So begin to read your dreams as as metaphor. And I guarantee there's a metaphor in that one for you. All right. Oh, wow, this is a good one. Sven, I now realize that my dad enabled my mom's emotional abuse. Do I accept it without hate? How do I accept it without hate? Sven, I now realize that my dad enabled my mom's emotional abuse. How do I accept it without hate? What I find fascinating is that you even bring hate into the conversation. That almost seems to imply that the hate is there, but gee, I don't want to bring it into the conversation. How do I accept it without hating my dad for enabling my mom's emotional abuse? Well, I, I don't know why without hate is a goal. And I actually, I do know why, because, and I go through this with a lot of clients, and this is a really critical piece here, folks. When you're dealing with parent stuff, if you're an adult and dealing with parent stuff, especially if you're an adult, it can be when you're a teen, but um, when you're an adult dealing with parent stuff, so often there, we are disinclined to even consider the word hate. We're disinclined to even allow that into the conversation because, hey, it's my mom. I can't be, I can't hate my mom or, you know, because it's family. You can't hate your family or, I'm not a hater. You know, I, there's no hate, man. There's no hate. And I'm like, really? We go further into it. And I dig down deeper and deeper and deeper. I have tools for getting people there. I have questions that I use. I have sort of little tricks, if you want to call it that, uh, for getting people down there. But the truth is, if you've been neglected, if you've been abused, if you've had someone really mistreat you, especially now looking back, I was a fucking child. I had no power. You had all the power. And you abused me. Really? A child? Really? Really? You have every right to feel hate. But people are like, well, I can't feel hate. I'm not a hater. Yes, you are. If you have hate inside of you, you are by definition a hater. You cease to be a hater when you get it out of you. It doesn't mean you have to get it out at the person. It means get a fucking pad of paper and a pen and write out all your letters of hate that you don't send. Journal out all of your hatred and your anger and your disappointment and your betrayal. Dad, you let mom abuse us. Are you out of your fucking mind, old man? Seriously? You stood by. You had the power to stop it, and you didn't. Raises the age-old question. Who commits the greater crime, the parent who hits the child or the parent who allows the child to be hit? Now, everybody can answer it differently. That's not really the point. The question was, Sven, I now realize that my dad enabled my mom's emotional abuse. Enabled it. Not just allowed it. Enabled to make it able, to make it happen, facilitated to some greater or lesser degree. How do I accept it without hate? I, I, I'm i telling you, you're asking the wrong question. I say, you welcome the hate. You flush out that hate. Otherwise, you're just locking it down. You're playing pretend. Oh, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. La, 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 the hate doesn't exist. No, it does. And it's in you. You're just playing Pretend. It's bullshit. That's not emotional authenticity. And I'm not scolding you. I'm just saying you are one of so many of us. And I've done this before in my own life. So I'm I'm calling myself out as much as anyone else. But until I let it out and just let my feelings be what they are, welcome them, allow them to be authentic and real and right in front of me. You want to know why you do that? Because when you allow your feelings to just come out and just flush them out and you don't ever have to do it to the person if you don't want to, that's not required. I can heal you. Even if the parent is dead, I can heal you. Even if you never say word one to the parent, these tools, it's like this shit works, but you got to get it out because you want to know why? You want to know why we welcome feelings? Do you want to know why we allow our children to cry when they come home from school? They've been holding it in all day because, you know, the bully was mean to them or teacher made them feel stupid or whatever. Do you want to know why? Because feelings, when they are allowed, pass. It's like a train just passing through town, just passes right through. The Metro North passes right through all sorts of towns coming out of New York City. Honk, honk, and then it passes right through and the honking is gone and the train is gone. Same way with feelings. Now, some are more painful. They take longer, but they still pass through. But the mistake we make is we lock that shit down. We say, no, fucking, I don't want to fucking feel that. Fucking feelings are bad, blah, blah, blah. No. No. If you allow it and you allow it and you allow it, it will pass. Yes, even in the worst case, I have dealt with war veterans. I have counseled uh, people who have lost children and lovers and best friends and siblings. And if you allow it, it too shall pass. It will. All right. Next question. This one is sort of similar because it dovetails with everything we've been talking about already, but it's a different topic. Sven, I have constant horrible nightmares about my childhood trauma. How can I stop the nightmares? Um, Betsy, it's not a pretty answer, but you stop the nightmares by what I've been saying this whole time along. And that is you have to flush out. There's still pain inside of, you. there's still pain inside of you, right? And the nightmares in the dreams are metaphors for the actual pain that's still inside of you from the past. And oftentimes the very unthinkable thing, the thing we most don't want to do in life is to feel those pains again of something that happened in childhood or of when my lover left me. We don't want to feel that pain again. And so we keep it packed down. But the more we release it and allow it and welcome it and purge it and flush it and flush it and purge it, it diminishes in intensity, in frequency, and in duration. You just have to keep flushing the pain out. But we're so afraid of that. It's like, I don't want to feel that shit again. It'll overwhelm me. Yes, exactly. Other people have said it in other ways, but I like this one. Joseph Campbell, my favorite author, Said, the cave we most fear to enter holds the treasure we seek. We all want happiness, but no one wants to go into the fucking cave of all the pain, right? Because I fear I'll be overwhelmed. It would destroy me. No, it won't. I mean, yeah, it'll overwhelm you at times, but you keep pushing through. You keep flushing out the pain and the fears and the bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself, identifying them and flushing them. And that's what my book is for. What differs from most books is that it helps you to identify what those core beliefs are that you can't even fucking see right now. But the more you flush that out, the further you're going into that cave. And inside of that cave is the treasure you seek. And that's happiness. That's aliveness. It's that inner peace. It's a sense of lightness, finally. It's the motivation. It's strength. All of those things that we all seek in life. Do you Do you realize that? I just want to stop here for a minute. Do you realize why we buy a new car? Okay, yes, it's a new car smell, and That's a nice fucking smell. But I... When I drive a car that I know isn't going to break down or potentially break down, I feel what? Oh, huh, a sense of security. I feel a sense of safety. When I buy a new coat, well, my old coat wasn't exactly raggedy, but I ah, feels good to buy a new coat. Hey, man, it's fucking winter. I want a new coat. feels good, right? When I cut off someone who's um, being rude or mean to me, I cut them off. Why am I cutting them off? Because that doesn't feel good, and it feels good to have space where I feel comfortable, where I feel safe where someone's not being a dick, right? That ultimately, every decision we make in life is driven by the desire to feel something. Do you realize that? Literally everything. Everything, every time you get into a relationship, you can say, well, you know, I got into a relationship with Polly because Polly, uh, she's smart, she's funny, she's that, da, 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 and that, you know, and that's why I got into-. no, you didn't. Because the truth is, you probably dated other people who were smart, who were funny, who were pretty, who were da, 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 da. but for whatever reason, you didn't feel it for that person, ever been on a date before. And it's like, this person's smart, they're cool, they're everything, but I just don't feel it, okay? It's not the thing about them, it's how this thing, this chemistry makes me feel. And ultimately, and, and this is so repulsive to some people when they take it on the surface level, I'm talking about a deeper level, all relationships end for the exact same reason. Somebody doesn't feel it anymore. There can be this reason or that reason, you know, he cheated or she's a rat or whatever, But it's ultimately in the end, and it doesn't feel good. Or I want to feel something different. Everything in life is driven by the desire to feel something. So has it ever occurred to you in your self-work, in your journaling, to ask yourself the question, what are the feelings I most want to feel? Now I'm being serious. Now we're at the super macro in terms of looking at life and decisions and so forth. What are the feelings you most want to feel? For some people, it's peace. For some people, it's safety, security. For some people, it's strength. For some people, for me, it's aliveness. It's aliveness aliveness, such that even when I'm in my times of solitude and peace, I feel alive. I feel connected, just vibrant to my own self. Everybody's driven by different feelings that they're driving towards. But then you got to ask yourself the question, if those are the feelings that I'm ultimately driving towards with ancillary ones, you know, along the way, are the paths and actions and purposes and relationships that I'm engaged in, driving me towards those feelings or driving me further away from experiencing those particular feelings? What are the feelings, the desire to feel what feelings for you? What drives you? Which feelings really drive you? Or are you even driving towards the feelings you want or are you living a life of tolerating feelings you don't want? And then when do you realize, fuck, I don't wanna fucking live this way. Fuck this shit. I'm sick of feeling a life of feelings I don't want. And then there's that other curse, and then I'll take I'll take the next question here. But the other curse is, it's a blessing and a curse. I was raised by, as you guys well know, uh, World War II generation parents. They were born in 1928. Uh, Great Depression, they were children on farms in the Great Depression in the U.S. Eesh. And then World War II, dad tried to sneak into World War II when he was 17. And that generation and the generation before it was largely uh, filled with the ethos, at least in the United States, of Pack up your troubles in the old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. Or in the World War II generation, put on a happy face. Or, you know, that sort of thing. Make the best of it. No, oh, it's not so bad. And I was raised in that ethos of make the best of it. It's not so bad. Ah, I can take it. Ah, it's no big deal. Ah, make the best of it. Find the good in anything, Right. And I can do that. And I'm glad that my parents gave me that gift. And I enjoy being around people who are positive in their outlook. You know, I work with people who are very, very sad and work with people in counseling all the time who aren't able to be. And that's fine. And I love my work. But in my regular life, outside of work, I like people who have a positive outlook. It's just fun. Not all, all of them, not all the time, whatever. But the point is making the best of it. And I began to realize that I was raised with that ethos and I love that, but You can go through life, well, I'm making the best of it. Ah, it's not so bad. I can make the best of it. Ah, it's okay, it's okay. I'll make the best of it. Make the best of it. And you get down the road and you realize you're making the best of life. But this isn't actually what I want. This isn't what I want. Yes, I can make the best of it, but I don't want this. Is it possible that the life you're living, yes, you're making the best of it, trying to, maybe suffocating under feelings that you don't want to be feeling. You're making the best of it, but this isn't what you fucking want. And I'm not scolding you. I'm I'm saying, oh, I feel bad because I've been there. I lived it. You all know I, I, you know, I brought myself, it took me years, but I was in a 12-year suicidal depression. Well, my work is based on what I had to do to get myself out of that because I didn't have therapy to help. And I realized I had a life that I never chose, that I didn't want. How much of your life is life that you don't actually want? How much of life is you experiencing feelings that you don't actually want to be feeling? How much of your life is because you're not engaging in paths, purposes, plans, people who are moving you in the direction of the macro feelings you want to be feeling in your life? Identify the feelings you most want to be feeling in your life and then bring it down to the sub-macro, Not nowhere near the micro yet. Bring it down to the sub-macro where we're looking at, well, are my paths, plans, purposes, people, et cetera, moving me in the directions of feeling I want or am I just living a life of feelings I don't want to feel? Because everything boils down to the desire, to feel certain ways. All right, all right. Brenda Price says to me, take more questions, Sven, and she says it in all capital letters. In other words, shut the fuck
0: up. She's yelling at you. Yeah, it
1: says, take more questions, Sven, in all capital letters and four exclamation points. Wow, all right. I'm not even gonna comment on that.
0: Since you are taking more questions, what do you think was going on there?
1: I think someone is saying to me, Don't pontificate or preach so much. Just take our questions.
0: Oh, yeah. Fast answers. Yeah. Why don't you just try yes or no? Yes.
1: Uh, Here's a question answer no. Uh, Next one, yes. Oh, Brenda Price, very sweet, very sweet, very sweet. She actually says in capital letters again uh, no, I'm sorry, and five hearts. You're a sweetheart, Brenda. That's all cleared up. All right. This now is a question that needs to be addressed. Can cheaters change? And if you've watched my videos before on cheating, and if you haven't, they are cataloged on TikTok. Uh, My assistant is working on cataloging them on Instagram. Uh, They are not cataloged yet on Facebook, but um, you can go into the album on my profile page on TikTok, pull up all the cheating videos. And I address this question a number of times. Can cheaters change? The answer is this, if they actually go in and not just go into counseling, but they have to drill down to the root of the cheating. And so many people think the root of the cheating is the marriage. Problems in the marriage, all problems inside a marriage predate that marriage. They go back to childhood shit and the conditioning, what you are conditioning to think about yourself and believe about yourself. That ultimately way the fuck down here where most therapists don't go, don't even know it exists. That's what's driving the cheating. The cheating is not being driven by, oh, midlife crisis. It's not being driven by, oh, my marriage sucks. Oh, my husband's an asshole. Or, you know, it's not being driven. The real shit is... They're trying to get some deep core need that was never met back there. Need for approval, need for acceptance, need to feel validated. Uh, they're addressing those deep pains and messages they were taught about themselves. That's what's happening here. All right, so the only way they're going to change is that shit and actually change is either, A, that shit gets addressed and pulled out, which requires deep counseling. It doesn't happen quickly. It's not gonna happen in a few months okay, with most therapists. It's not, all right? So that has to be addressed and or the fear of fucking God has to be put in them to just scare them out of never cheating. If the desire is them never cheat, if that's what you mean by does a cheater ever change, yeah, something can scare the shit out of them. It's just like a narcissist changing. If something scares the shit out of them, if there's something so fucking painful, they will. They have. That's when they have the opportunity to change. But if there's no pain point, they're not going to fucking change. There's no incentive. Why would they change? Okay, but here's the other thing I want you to consider when it comes to will they cheat again? That a lot of times, this is the other caveat, a lot of times they will cheat, but in a different form. They. What if we change the definition of cheating from having a sexual or emotional affair with someone to what if we looked at it as engaging in some behavior that has the power to uh, undermine or explode the relationship? Ah. So if there's some unmet need or some unmet misery from my childhood, there's some implanted misery from my childhood, the cheating provides some form of escape from that life of inner pain. There's some form of escape. Well, they may not cheat again, but what if they engage in some other behavior that has the uh, power to explode the relationship? What if they were to start gambling? What if they were to invest and lose the family fortune? What if they were to start going to pills or something like that? If that core inner shit is not addressed, they will engage in some type of behavior that has the power to destroy the relationship. Until that inner shit that drove it to begin with is healed, in all likelihood, if if Vegas were giving me odds, I would bet my left testicle that they are going to cheat again in some form. It may not be an emotional or, or sexual affair with another person, but they will engage in some behavior that has the power to blow up the relationship. All right, next question. What does healthy distance look like with the ex-spouse when children are involved? Healthy distance with the ex-spouse when children are involved, obviously you have to interact with this person. I went through this. You have to interact with this person. You have to communicate, you know, they're gonna be, hey, I need half the money for Billy's signing up for baseball this year. Or, well, wait, does that mean you're picking them up on Friday and then dropping them off on Sunday? Or are you asking to pick them up Friday morning? I mean, there's just endless communication that's required. So there has to be a line of communication open in order to communicate with an ex-spouse when children are involved, right? Healthy distance, which implies you want distance and you want it to be healthy, means why the hell are you interacting beyond that? Beyond the functional. It's really asking yourself, is it functional? Am I engaging in in what is necessary to facilitate the parenting, the co-parenting of the children? And so it's like... yeah, in all honesty, especially when the divorce or separation first happens in the first year, in the first couple of years, until things settle down, less contact is generally better than more contact. Why? Shit needs to settle down. And you're still engaged in the hot button conversations. Don't try to fucking be friends right away. You may end up being friends. Don't try to do it right away. All right. Just give it fucking room to breathe, you know? but healthy distance. Don't engage in personal conversations and don't allow the other person to dig if you don't want them to dig. Oh, what are you doing? Why is that? And you also need to uh, address your own shit so that your buttons aren't being pushed by this person who, if you've been in a relationship with them long enough to have kids, they know damn well how to push your buttons, right? So you need to be working on the stuff inside of you that gets triggered you need to be addressing your pain points, your hot button issues, the things about this person that piss you off. Keep flushing and working on that stuff. Why? So that you're less susceptible to being triggered. All right, next question. Uh, first of all, before I take that question, do you see clients? Yes, I do. You can go to badasscounseling.com and go to the counseling page. Uh, it's all right there. Badasscounseling.com. If you don't want to see me as uh, your therapist, uh, as your counselor, uh, just get the book. There's a hole in my love cup. It's available on the website as well. That's 80% of my counseling method uh, right there. Um, and it's available in ebook or paperback or audiobook, which soon will be only available on the website, the audiobook. The others will be available on Amazon. All right. And the website. Here's the question, though Can you be addicted to being depressed? It's a great question. As you guys know, you've heard me say before, I was depressed for 12 years, suicidally depressed. Can you be addicted to it? Yes and then that raises a question the outsider might say well why would you want to be addicted to uh, you know being depressed and the answer to any from any addiction is it's not that i want to it's just kind of is okay so how do you become addicted to depressed being depressed my my answer in most situations is what's the fear of driving the behavior what's the fear of driving the pattern well, what do you mean? What's the fear? Well, if I'm depressed and I'm staying depressed and I can't seem to get myself out of it, why is that? If there were if there were a fear, and maybe this isn't in your case, but I'd be willing to bet there is, this is. If there were a fear driving someone to be depressed and stay depressed, what would the fear be? And it's the same thing that drives people to um, not wanna go into therapy or to quit therapy. It's the same thing that causes people to uh, stuff their shit down. It's the same thing. What is it? Fear of facing that shit. If I stay depressed, all right? If I'm in the depression, I may feel like, what are you talking about, Sven? What do you mean don't want to feel the shit? All I, I feel that shit all the time. Yeah, but there's shit you don't want to look at. There's shit you don't want to touch. There's stuff in there that is so fucking painful. And you, but Sven, I'm in the painful stuff all day, every day. Yeah, but you're not flushing it out. The idea of actively flushing it out, actively addressing it and diving into it and finding what it's trying to teach me and finding the gems of wisdom inside it. And yes, all pain holds gems of wisdom. All pain holds teachings, holds cascading waterfalls of new insight. All pain, physical, mental, all of it. There's always new insight in there and to go inside of it, to be flushing out that pain and the concomitant fears, but also to be pulling it apart, to find out what it's trying to teach me about myself and about life. That we stay in a depression because there's a terror of facing something else. There's some other great fear, and it may be that great fear inside of you, or it could be that I've been depressed for so long, I don't even know who the hell I would be if I weren't depressed. Or I'm terrified of coming out because there's something in that depression that feels safe. That I don't have to look at the world. I don't have to address the world. I don't have to interact in the world as much. It allows me to hide. But you've got to get inside of there and ask yourself, what's driving my, if, if, if I am choosing this, if it's being driven by some fear, if, what would it be? And you begin to dive into that. Well, why is that? Well, what is it I'm really afraid of? And what triggered that? Oh, these are all questions you need to be asking in in your journaling. It's the how, the what, the why, the wherefore. Why now? Why then? All these questions dig deeper and deeper and deeper because sometimes it's easier. Even a depression sometimes is a surface depression because we're not wanting to go down real fucking deep to the bedrock of what's really fucking going on. Next question. What do I do when my partner brings up the past? For example, cheating. What can I do or say? Well, if it is cheating, well, you said, for example, cheating, This is one of those tricky spots in relationships where where someone has cheated and the person who's done the cheating may have owned it, may not have owned it, may have apologized, may not have apologized, may have apologized sincerely or insincerely, whatever it is. But until you've been cheated on, you don't know the level of pain and distrust it causes. And the notion, well, I've I've been atoning for years. Why won't she just get over it? Why won't he just let it go? It's like, you don't get it. You don't get it, and especially if the person who was cheated on doesn't feel like they got a sincere apology or doesn't feel like the person really owned it or feels like there are still unanswered questions or just for whatever reason just doesn't trust you. See, when people say, can a relationship go on after cheating? It's like, sure, but to, to breach the trust. And for some people, cheating is like the one sin in a relationship that's the hardest to get over for a whole lot of people. So it's like, you can keep trying, you can keep saying shit, but it sounds like, I mean, your question is, what do I do when my partner brings up the past? For example, cheating. What can I do or say? Really, at this point, there's nothing you can do or say, except if you really want to see where the relationship goes, if you really want to see, be honest, tell the entire fucking truth. Have you done that? Now, you probably have, but most cheaters will say they've told the truth and I know that they haven't. All right, I've I've been, cheating is one of the areas where I've spent a lot of time, written a two-volume book, counts a lot of cheaters I've been cheated on, I cheated, and I was the co-cheater in multiple situations when I was younger. And I'm telling you that rare is the cheater who tells the whole truth, all right? So if you've cheated, have you told the whole truth? Because there's a different sense. When someone is being lied to, people sense it. But more importantly, when someone has told the whole truth and just completely unburdened themselves, whether it's cheating or anything else, that person's countenance changes. That person's whole configuration, that person's whole like carriage changes. There's, there's a sense of just, <sighs> And if your partner isn't sensing that, it could be that your partner is sensing that you are still holding back, that they feel they haven't got the whole story. But then there's the other side of it. Maybe they have. Maybe you have given them the whole story. And the truth, the bottom line is, they're going to keep bringing up the past until they're healed or until they feel they've exacted their punishment. Now, this is the other side of it. The people who have been cheated on don't want to listen to. And that's this. If you're a cheater and you have been honest and you've laid it out there and you've done your penance and you feel like you've done it long enough and you're just sick of it, you're not required to stay in that relationship. You're at no point required to eat their shit forever. If you want to walk away, walk away. See, it's your life too. You don't need their permission to stay. And if somebody is is being, uh, you know, if you feel like they're being brutal to you and just exacting punishment on you, which is very common among people who have been cheated on is they want to hurt the other person. And they maintain, they create a new normal for the relationship where I'm just constantly keeping you in pain. And the truth is, for a while, you'll feel like they're doing that is justified. And then you'll reach a point where it's like, fuck this shit. I'm sick of this. You have every right to walk away. You have every right to leave. And they're gonna, they are going gonna—they may be pissed about it. And you're going to look like the bad guy because you cheated. And they're going to feel totally justified, whatever, whatever. But eventually, as with all things, change will not occur until the pain gets bad enough. And the cheater has every right to walk away, just as the one who is cheated on has every right to walk away. We're all autonomous beings, and it's not a pretty truth if you've been the one cheated on, which I have been. But bottom line is, is they can walk away as well. So, fine people, I think we have covered all points north, south, east, west when it comes to the coordinates of the soul. Rob, what do you think?
0: Uh, I think that's the first time you got into dream interpretation. It is. Kept me awake. (laughs) So
1: clever. So clever. I like this guy and KC is giving us the nod, thumbs up, feeling good about it. I hope you guys are feeling like maybe we uh, got hit something today that touched you, that, that spoke to your soul, that challenged you, especially challenged you in some new way. If you're not being challenged, it ain't counseling. If you're not being challenged, it ain't therapy. If you're not being challenged, it ain't growth. You know, the trees, the plants, the little shoots, the tulips, and the daffodils and the jonquils are trying to push through. They have to break out of their seed, and they have to push through that soil. There's challenge there's pain, there's growth. All growth comes with, you know, challenge. You know, there's, there's an old quote. There is no birth without blood and the tearing of flesh, both the literal and the metaphorical. And when it comes to the soul and the healing of the soul, there is blood and the tearing of flesh, metaphorically speaking. And that's why if you're not challenging yourself, you need to be because that's where the growth is. All right, fine people, those of you tuning in around the world, it's great to have you here and friends, listeners everywhere. It's just such a treat to be with you. On behalf of Casey and on behalf of Rob, I want to wish every single one of you have a kick-ass day.
0: The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of The Badass Counseling Show LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.